I'm going to be reading from Ephesians 5:18 through 21. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Cameron, if I don't know you. If I don't know you, I would like to know you. Come say hey after the service. But I am uh, the lead pastor here, and it's an honor to be with you. And uh, I just want to start by mentioning, I don't really know what I'm going to say. I, I, have a, I have a phrase here. Sometimes I script things out. Sometimes I just write, talk about the power of music. And that's all I have. So... You guys like music, right? <laughs> music, for most people, we can just acknowledge, is sort of self-evidently powerful. Um, there's something about a well-crafted song, a, a beautiful melody, the kind of energy, or the somberness and quiet and solitude feeling that it can produce that, that is moving, that's deeply moving. And it, it you know, that... It, it bears out from the m most highbrow, like classical or avant-garde or whatever kinds of music to the really, really simple stuff, folk music and pop music and everything in between. I remember my, f who remembers the first, like, album that you ever bought? A lot of us. Is anyone, like, really proud of the first album you ever bought? Yeah, Tyler, what was it? Weezer's Blue Album! Give this man a round of applause. You did it just right. Mine was Power Rangers the Movie, the soundtrack. I should have gone back and listened to it uh, to see how it holds up. I know that it features uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers cover of Higher Ground by Stevie Wonder. because That was the one that I just replayed over and over again. And... Uh, yeah, music for me has been incredibly powerful. It's been something I've been interested in since I was a child. It, you know, I've never taken it seriously enough to get any kind of formal training, but I remember falling in love and then, you know, seeing friends that started playing guitar and thinking, oh, I could maybe do that, and picking up the guitar and then forming a little garage band with my friends and picking up the drums because they needed a drummer, falling more in love with the drums. And then uh, church always needs bass players, so I started playing bass <laughs> at some point. And, you know, being involved in different bands and going to friends shows, there's so many, so many of you in this room are, like, so talented, and I've been to your shows and just marveled at, like, uh, what you're able to accomplish, like, the beauty that you're able to produce. Um, I love music, and I'm guessing, for most of you in this room, you love music. Portland, in fact, is a particular, uh, certainly not the most, but it's a, it, it's a music, it's an arts-appreciating town. And I feel like Door of Hope in particular has been an arts and music appreciating church throughout its history. Pause there. We're going to circle back. We started two weeks ago arguing that God, we started with from here, God is legitimately worthy of your praise. We wanted to make a biblical case for why that is the case. And you could go infinite places just about in the scriptures for that. But we went to John 3.16 and we found in that passage, we see that Jesus, that God himself, is the one who is both transcendently powerful, glorious, holy, and creative, and the eminently relational, committed, intimate 
Father, Son, and Spirit. He is also then both the righteous God of justice and moral order and the forgiving God of mercy and grace. And if he is all those things, if he can hold all those things together in himself, then he is uniquely worthy of all the praise and sacrifice and obedience and love that we can offer him. So then last week, we looked at Jesus' central teaching about the nature of worship in John chapter 4, which, which stated that Jesus' coming was introducing a new era of worship where worship is no longer primarily to happen at one location, one place, that was the temple in Jerusalem through the sacrificial system. That was the primary locus of worship. It's no longer there, but now can be anywhere, absolutely anywhere, as his people become the temples of his Holy Spirit themselves. And they carry, you carry, if you're a follower of Jesus, the presence of God within you wherever you go, whatever location, into whatever activity, wherever you are, you carry him with you. And thus, anywhere can become a place and an opportunity for worship. So, what this means is that everything we do, everything we do, I mean that, everything, from spiritual disciplines to just enjoying the blessings of creation out in nature, from prayer to celebrating a friend's company, from serving the church in some tangible way to eating a good meal, from reading the Bible to just working our jobs and parenting our children with character and integrity, if we're acknowledging the presence and gifts of God in their midst, these things all can be and ought to be worship. Even here at this worship gathering, every element. So I hope you can see now that everything we do here is an opportunity for worship in this space, communing with your brothers and sisters, praying together, listening to the scripture read and taught with receptivity, celebrating the Lord's Supper and baptisms when we do, serving, giving financially, and yes, singing together. Or as Paul put it, as Paul put it in Romans, we can now present our bodies as living sacrifices. Our whole selves and our whole lives, our whole lives to God, which is our spiritual worship in Paul's words. So with all that said, we can revisit our definition of worship that we talked about week one that's built on, on these ideas. This is this was something I came up with, synthesizing a number of good definitions. I think this captures the heart of worship that's consistent across the Bible. What is worship? It's the proper, sincere, and joyful, whole person, and all of life response to the gloriously beautiful nature and activity of the triune God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Today's sermon, the next 30 minutes or so, is about how music and singing specifically fit into that, how musical worship, if you will, fits into that definition. And I thought it was important that we took a few weeks to tee all of this up before we even talked sing, talk about singing, because for most of us, when we think Christian worship, we start jumping straight to music. We need to locate it in its proper place. But now it's time to talk about that proper place. What role is music meant to play in the larger vision of worship? Why did we just spend the first 15 minutes of our service singing together? That's what this morning's about. So let's jump in, but before we do, let's pray and invite the Spirit's influence. Father, we need you. Uh, I shared this with, with the group that prayed here before the service, and I, I share it here to you, and I share it here in front of these people that are praying with me, Lord. I have been confused about what this is for. It has not always been clear to me 
It may still not be in some ways, Lord, but where there's fog, we pray that you'd bring clarity. Where there's lack of interest and passion, we pray that you would just bring expectant joy. Lord, where uh, we are missing some piece of what it means to gather together to sing your praises, we pray that you would provide what is missing. We pray that this, this message, Lord, these next minutes, Lord, as feeble as this is, you would use them powerfully to shape us as a worshiping community who worships, yes, with all of life, but also with a real spirit and truth sincerity when we gather together to sing songs of praise to you. Help us, Lord. We need you so desperately. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, the passage that Katie read for us is from Ephesians 5, and it's a passage I think we have probably looked at as a community three or four times now already in our short three years as a, as a church plant because there's so much here. There's so much here, and we're going to f- just laser focus in on one particular aspect of this. But this passage is, is kind of one of Paul's most clear statements about what happens when the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, fills someone. And you might have a million different ideas about what that looks like and what that's meant to look like and what we can expect from that. And I think this passage is still always surprising for us. It is for me at least. So Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. Don't fill yourself to the extent that wine begins to, that you're intoxicated, you're drunk. You lose control of your faculties. For that's debauchery, that's dissipation, that's a waste. But be filled with the Spirit instead. His point is, you can be filled with lots of things. Alcohol isn't the only other thing that you can allow, like, a controlling force on your life. There's lots of things. But rather than anything else, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he says, here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like. First, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Then, singing, related, of course, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Then, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That was the most recent one we looked at a few weeks ago, actually. So what are, these aren't the only four things the Spirit of God does when he fills someone, but these are four things you can take to the bank with clarity. What does it look like for someone to be filled with the Spirit? Well, you begin to address one another in community through song. You begin to sing and make melody to the Lord that flows from your heart. You become a person of thanksgiving and appreciation and gratitude for everything to God. And then you submit to one another. There's also an aspect of how we humble ourselves next to our brothers and sisters out of reverence for Christ. The the ones we're obviously going to look at today are those first two, up through verse 19. So, movement one. Movement one of this first idea we need to solidify is that singing is meant to be with the Holy Spirit. It's with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit produces singing in his people because God is a God, did you know this, who values singing. And we, we you know, the first piece we might say of that is that God is a singing God. Um, Rachel referenced this earlier, but in Zephaniah 3.17, listen to this, the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God the Father sings joyfully over his people. There is mystery there, but there is beauty 
there. God is a singing God, but it's not just the Father, it's also the Son. We see a very practical example at the Lord's Supper, the night Jesus was betrayed in the upper room, it ended. We talked about this when we went through the gospel according to Mark. Mark 14, 26. After all, he institutes the Lord's Supper, they have their conversations, it says, when they had sung a hymn, then they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus himself that night, one of in this, these precious, as precious moments are taking away before he's arrested, ultimately crucified, he takes a moment to lead the disciples in a song, in a hymn. They sing together. Jesus leads them in song. And finally, I'm going to make it fully Trinitarian here, right here. The Holy Spirit fills his people, and under his influence, we become a people of singing and song. God is a God who values singing because he is a God of beauty. Singing, I think, I think, is just this tangible example of the business God is in as creator. He's in the business, Genesis 1 tells us, of taking the wild and waste, formless and void, wild chaos of the early created state and bringing order to it. And what is singing but taking the raw materials of sound, sound waves, particles, not particles, but sound waves bouncing to and fro amongst the air particles, Pitches, harmonies, all of these things coming together to make something orderly. And when something becomes orderly, it becomes beautiful. It becomes beautiful. So singing, even, is one little microcosm of this whole thing. God values the making something beautiful out of the chaos. And he's also just abundantly generous in that way. He didn't create, as we've talked about so many times, he didn't just create a world that's flat and cold and one color and monotone and single-pitched or whatever. He chose to create the world full of this amazing color spectrum and taste spectrum and, yes, sound and musical spectrum just because he's good. He says, this is good. This is beautiful. I, want, I enjoy this, and I want my people that I love to be able to enjoy this. So if that is true, it makes sense, therefore, that God's people have always been a singing people. We can't exhaustively cover this, uh, but we will just very briefly say, think about the singing, singing in Israel. We have num- numerous examples of people breaking out in song of celebration and so forth, but the central point we could look at is the Psalms. The Psalms, largest book in the Bible, which is one of the great worship manuals of the Hebrew Bible. It is literally a book of prayers made poems made songs. Did you know that? You can rightfully think of it as a prayer book, but it's also those prayers expressed through melody, through song. The psalms themselves command the people, the readers of those songs, to sing them over 100 times. The psalms, which also incidentally became the the worship manual for the early Christian church as well. But even more specifically than that, singing in the early church in various New Testament passages, we see singing as both just an organic response to things God is doing in the Christian's midst and an assumed part of their gathering together, as this passage does assume when they're together. They will address one another when we are together in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And it carried through even into the early centuries of church history. Second century figures Pliny and Tertullian described the importance of singing in churches after the apostles' time. And every major branch and denomination of Christianity has featured a prominent place. It looks very different, believe me, across different Christian traditions, but some place, some prominent place for music in the worshiping life of the church. So, why do we sing here? Just one answer, and I know it's not the most satisfying one, but it's where we should start, is that God commands it. 
God commands it. One answer is God commands it and that it helps us reflect him, the singing God, in some way. So take this as a command. Let the Spirit of God fill you. You can't fill yourself. You, you yield to him. Let him fill you. And as you do, you respond to that filling. You let it overflow into singing. But surely there's more. And there is. Let's keep going. So we're going to skip uh, to, to verse uh, 18, 19b, the second half of verse 19 there. We're going to talk about it. it's not just singing with the Spirit, but it's singing with the whole person that Paul has in mind here. He says, one of the outflows of the Spirit's work in your life will be to sing, singing and making melody to the Lord. Here's our key phrase. With your heart. With your heart. Singing is meant to be something that is the overflow of the heart. It begins in the heart. And what is the heart? I don't mean this beating organ right here. Isn't it more, is heart in the center of your chest? Someone told me that at some point. It's still over to the side a little bit. This may not be super important for our purposes right now, but uh, felt important to sort that out. Um, it starts not in the organ, but the way we colloquially talk about the heart, and the Bible talks about the heart, the innermost part of the person. It's the seat of your will, your emotions, your thinking, your desires, all of these things. So genuine worship comes from a place of depth, the interior life of you with sincerity, out from the heart. And we see that your heart, it's when your heart is tuned to whom? To the Lord. The, the, the object and primary audience of our worship is God himself. To the Lord with your heart. And we, hint, we hinted at this last week, but we're going to really dive in here. The singing then is a way to involve your whole body in that moment of worship. So again, Worship can be all of life, begins in the heart, in your spirit, but then here's what music does. Music encourages this interior thing that's happening that you can, write, you can sincerely do, just you, quiet, sitting still, worshiping the Lord. You don't have to move your mouth, you don't have to make a sound, you can worship simply from the heart. But music, music encourages your body so that you let that inner worship come out through your lungs, through your vocal cords, through your tongue, and the rest of your body as well, which we'll pick up in a minute. So the heart, as it responds to God in worship and praise, has these moments, these moments where you can't help, you can't just keep it inside. It bubbles up, it becomes these moments of exclamation bubbling out of you into physical praise. Praise and worship can and should be all of life activity, including plenty of quiet moments. Worship can be very, very quiet. It doesn't have to be loud or even audible to be sincere. But it does find expression sometimes through a concentrated outburst of singing. That's the idea. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm still struck by, we mentioned this last week, the image of Adam in the garden. What did worship look like for Adam before there was a temple and sin and all this stuff? He was just enjoying the world obeying God's command to try to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and take care of creation and steward it and cultivate it and all those things. And you just get, you get this one image, actually, this one moment. I imagine there were many others like this. But when God creates Eve and he just bursts out in poetry, it's this, this is so good, I have to acknowledge it. 
doesn't mean he wasn't worshiping before, but it's this moment of exclamation. I think that's a model for us. I think that's a model for us. So singing is the overflow of the heart, but it comes out through the whole body as well. And we can put up this next slide here. Because all of this is involved, we see in, in the scriptures, in singing here. It involves your voice. We already mentioned that, obviously. If you're going to sing, your voice and the whole mechanism that's involved in singing, uh, from your brain to your lungs to your throat to your voice, your, your mouth, your tongue, all of it is, is employed when you sing. But then also through your eyes, choosing to either look around and be attentive or to close them for some sort of, you know, kind of spiritual concentration, if you will. And then through posture, through posture as well. There's no way to not have a posture when you're singing. You realize that, right? There's no, like, you don't just, like, become an immaterial person if you're choosing to sit. You're sitting. That's the posture you've chosen. And that is a fine posture to choose. There are many biblical passages, including in the Psalms, where it talks about sitting still before the Lord. Sitting still, which often produces a reverence and a focus. But also calls to stand, to stand to your feet. To give awe, that often symbolizes awe and attention, standing at attention before God. But then there's these different degrees of sort of humility and deference to God. We talked about the very meaning of worship is to lie prostrate. So it makes sense that we see across the Psalms examples, people lowering the head, bowing the head. But more than that, kneeling. More than that, bowing. And more than that, lying prostrate each a more, like, you guys, did someone just chuckle? <laughs> this is serious. Yeah, we're uncomfortable with it. Door of Hope is not a hyper-expressive worshiping community. We, we must acknowledge out of the gate. And yet, the scriptures declare there's a place for involving your whole body. There's also a place for trying not to be a distraction, of course. But there is a place for these kinds of physical, physical, bodily Acts of humility and deference to God. That's what those are for. There's also reference of lifting the hands, which often is adoration or petition, like, Lord, I need, I need you. I need something from you. I need your presence. There's clapping, joyful approval. We know what that is. There's lifting the head. It doesn't always have to be head bowed. It can be lifting the head, which is a sign of trust and confidence. Or dancing, dancing, as in Psalm 150 that Rachel read to start this gathering an expression of joy. So, the, the worship moment through song comes out through our voice, it engages our eyes, it engages our whole posture, our whole body, and if we're talking about our body, we also have to talk about our emotions. Our emotions. Throughout the Bible, we see God the Father express deep emotion, as we also do with Jesus. Since God is God who expresses emotions, it is no surprise that he made us to do that too. Emotions, in part, indicate what is valuable and important to us, whether we're cognizant of them or not. And here's the important thing. Emotions are a feature, not a bug, of how we're created. And we have to say we can, of course, draw false conclusions from our, from our emotions or be led astray by them at times. But, but, but just don't miss this. The fact that we emote that we are an emotional people, is just good. And many of us have been taught that either, either explicitly or through implication, that sort of emotionally detached stoicism is a marker of Christian health and maturity. 
Have you ever, I want to see you raising hands. Has anyone either heard that explicitly or, or, or implicitly, that kind of that's what you're supposed to be, emotionally detached? Yeah, a lot of us. It's not true. It's not true. In fact, it's my hunch that music is such an important part of worship to God precisely because of its ability to engage us each as whole people. Our spirits, of course, and also our bodies, voices, eyes, ears, postures, hearts, minds, wills, and especially emotions. So just a, a moment on, on music and, and what it, how it works as a creative emotional aid. First, I want to talk about the, the, the relationship between word and poetry. So poetry, poetry is an artistic gift used to stir the whole person and communicate more deeply. Poetry often employs a super economical approach to language that pays special attention to every word and syllable structured with great intention. It often uses concrete images to express abstract ideas, and I just came to mind as we were singing um, uh, Jesus, Savior, Pilot Me. All this language about God piloting us through tumultuous waters, that's, that's precisely what this is trafficking in. It's using the image of choppy seas and dangerous conditions, but God being the one who has the power to quiet that storm. We're not singing that we literally expect to be out on the high seas soon. Maybe some of you will be soon, but I'm expecting most of us are not getting on a boat anytime soon. And yet, if you were tiled into that song, you, were, you, were, you understood what was being communicated, what was being drawn out of you, the kind of provision and care and safety that God provides to us, that we're asking for, we're pleading for, we're praising him for, in fact. The poetry uses concrete images to express abstract ideas oftentimes. It stirs our imaginations. It requires a little bit more wrestling. Poetry is intended to express and to evoke, to help us feel alongside the poet. So all the songs we sing, we, we want them to be scriptural, saturated in scripture, proclaiming truths we find in scripture, and yet they're not largely just long prose sections like we might find in the book of Romans or something. They're carefully you know, authored distillations of these ideas in poetic form, meant to engage us in a different way than when we sit down and read a textbook or a theology book or even long passages of sort of narrative in the Bible or whatever it may be. So that's one thing. Um, in his great book, Discovering God Through the Arts, which uh, we have over in our little bookstore, Terry Glaspie argues that poetry is uniquely suited to help us become aware of and process the mysterious in both life and faith. And at one point he writes, a scientist can only tell us about the chemical reactions we experience when we feel affection for another person. You wanna know about chemical reactions? You can go ask a scientist or a chemist or someone like that. A psychiatrist or psychologist will help us deal with the emotional states that such affection may create within us. A philosopher will theorize about how love works within a particular system of thought, but a poet, a poet, will delve deep into the mystery of love. Poetry can help us experience that mystery vicariously and perhaps be reminded and reconnected with our own experiences of love and its attendant feeling. It's not to denigrate any of these other modes of communication, they're all important, but poetry does something no other medium does. So the poetry 
we find in our songs, again, can take something like a long discourse found in Romans or the story of God's salvation through the Exodus and help us experience it in a new way with special impact. And now I take a second to remind you again that poetry is one of the chief genres of the literature in the Bible and the heart of its central guide for worship, the Psalms. God did that on purpose. He did that on purpose. But I also want to talk about word and melody. Because songs are not just poetry, they're poetry set to melody, set to music. And as Harold Best writes in his great book, Unceasing Worship, listen to this. Music's capability for union with words is unparalleled in any other art form. This means the most exact form of communicating truth, which is words, can be coupled to the most inexact form, which is music, in a completely natural way. And this holds over the entire range of pitch and word, from chant and oratorio, from a child sing song to the most sophisticated art song, from simple scripture songs to the most artfully composed hymn. Words and melody come together naturally. For some reason, in the way God has created the world, they can be put together perfectly naturally, where words are literally sung in melody with nothing else muddying it up, to move us in, in several ways. And so I would, I'm just going to quote Harold Best again. This is a great, another great, great quote. Why, why reinvent the wheel here? He says, among all the arts used within the corporate assembly, and there are numerous, music has a unique role. Not because it's superior to the other art forms, but because of its native peculiarity. Listen to this. Each of us, you know, bar, barring a tragedy, of course, each of us has a God-created instrument within us, the voice. We are commanded to use this instrument in singing the praise of God. A congregation of untrained voices singing mightily to the Lord has a beauty that immediately sets it apart. In addition, music carries text with little effort, especially in chant, simple melody, and wisely crafted harmony. Thus, congregational song, while being the center of all church music, is both truth carrier and melodic offering. It's both. It's truth and beauty together, working on us and in us and through us in ways that are even mysterious. We have to maybe pause there to, to say this. As Richard Foster wrote, singing is meant to move us into praise and it provides a medium for the expression of emotion. But a lot of us probably rightly have a category for like, whoa, whoa, whoa but isn't there something bad about sort of emotional manipulation and so forth? And the answer is yes, yes. Um, Emotion, in response to Jesus, in worship, is good. Hear that. If you love Jesus, it should naturally produce an emotional response in you. If you have a friend that you love, a spouse that you love, a child that you love, whoever, if there's someone that you love and you never feel affection for them, something is wrong. Something is wrong. Emotion in response to Jesus in worship is good. And music can aid that, can help that. Emotion in response to music at the expense of or exclusion of Jesus is to miss the point of the gathered worship assembly entirely. That's the rub. So if, if it becomes simply, man, this music is really good and there is no connection to Jesus, to his saving work, to his joy, his character, whatever else, we, are, we might as well not be here doing this. 
We're just singing songs. And hey, let me say this too. Just enjoying music for music's sake is not bad. That's not the problem either. It's that we are, our stated goal right now is the worship of the king. And if we're distracted off with something else, we have just missed what we're here to do and the unique power of the opportunity that we have here. So, that said, being moved by music is not bad. It, too, can be an avenue for common grace joy, and when we connect it quite explicitly to God, then it can become an avenue for worship. In the end, the main thing to avoid is the crowding out of truth and the crowding out of an encounter with Jesus. If we were to do that in such a way that we crowd out truth and Jesus himself, the Spirit himself, we are missing the point. It's also to avoid performance, the idea that if I just go through the motions and do all the right things, then that is somehow pleasing to God. It is not. It's from the heart, with sincerity and truth, and spirit and truth. And one of our goals as well is to avoid self-consciousness. I can't tell you, I mean, we talked about this in our community group this week, like all of us experience to some degree this like push and pull when we're here worshiping through song, like, should I, I, I kind of want to raise my hands, but if I do, will people think I'm weird or I'm showing off? Will it look like I think I'm more spiritual than I am? Well, I want to raise my hands, but, I, but if I really stop and think about it, am I really moved to such a degree where that is like an authentic, you know, we just get in our heads. Who's felt that way? Pretty much all of us. It's weird. It's weird. And yes, we want to be, you know, cognizant of others. We don't want to be a distraction to others. We don't want to do anything, you know, that's going to be flagrantly distracting. And yet, and yet, I think most of us do not have that problem. Most of us have the problem of being far too reserved because we're just in our heads and we've taken our eyes off of Jesus and we've taken our eyes off onto, like, put our eyes on, like, reputation or how cool I look. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is in me exactly, but I know that it's not good and it's not healthy. So we want to avoid that sort of self-consciousness so that we can authentically connect with God as a whole person. For our part here, Door of Hope Northeast, our values around simplicity guide us to not use every single tool at our disposal for maximum impact that we might to stir emotion at the maximal level. It does seem that too many stimuli can easily overshadow the words we're reflecting on and proclaiming to Jesus. That's the reason we don't have a smoke machine and we don't have a laser light show. <laughs> yeah, some of you might genuinely wish that we, we did, and that might not be an ex, uh, uh, a distraction for you. Uh, I, I believe that's possible. I believe it's possible that the laser is a genuine aid in worship for like 2% of you. But for the other 98% of us, I think it's gonna be a problem. <laughs> It's going to be a problem. That's the, that's the bet we're, uh, we're hedging right now. We do not want to, you know, say, oh, well, if anything can be a tool for stirring emotion, let's just dial it all up to 11 and see what happens. Because I just think, I, I, my sensibility is that many disagree, but my sensibility is that we will lose something of communing with Jesus in that. And yet, that doesn't mean that we don't want to use beautiful, emotive music to stir our hearts to worship Jesus. Hear that. We're just trying to find a balance. I'm certain we don't have it 100% right, if anyone does, but we're trying to find the balance in there. If our time becomes about emotion for emotion's sake here, we will have missed the Holy Spirit. So to summarize, music helps us bring our whole selves, body, emotions, and all, in a, out into a moment of exclamation, a moment of praise. 
taking that whole all-of-life worship and putting a punctuation mark point on the end in a declaration together through this poetic, mysterious, beautiful, artistic at, like, avenue that God has given us and modeled for us in music. Poetry set to melody. So, I think that's largely the reason music is employed so prominently by God in the scriptures for our worship. That's singing with the whole self. One more. This passage also talks about the importance of singing with the community. That's what he first says in verse 19. Addressing one another. One another. Hopefully you're paying attention to that little word, that little phrase, one another, after that series we did. This is one of those one another's. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The singing shapes how we address one another and is a way of addressing and teaching one another. When Bria Walter taught for us uh, during our One Another's series, she mentioned this, the instructive power of song, sung together in community. There's something different than you alone in your car to when you are here, gathered with your local church community. It's a way of mutually addressing one another. The singing shapes our theology. Hopefully the songs then are good, of good theological content of truth. The singing shapes our theology and thus it shapes our lives. God is the object of our worship and then our brothers and sisters are our secondary audience for our worship. That's what he's saying. That might make you uncomfortable. He's saying like there's something about our voices being heard by one another that is part of the point. It's the encouragement. It's, it's that when you're discouraged and you're doubting and you hear. I've had this moment in this room with some of you, and I hear someone singing gospel truth boldly next to me. It strengthens me. It emboldens me. It gives me the confidence. Like, oh, yeah, like people really do believe this stuff when I'm in a moment of doubt. That's what this is together when we sing boldly together. And he also talks about the community's songs, or even a community of songs. Because look, he mentions three categories here. Addressing one another in psalms, which very likely is just referring to the psalms, the, the Hebrew psalms that we've been talking about. These psalms, also hymns and spiritual songs, which scholars are very, very debated on if those are different, what, like why he's used those two different terms. It's unclear if they have any different emphasis. But the point is, the hymns found in the scripture and probably new songs that Christians are writing that are just coming together for the early church community and now for us in the later church community. So we have the Psalms, biblical songs. Remember, the, Psalm, the Psalms is a songbook. They command people to sing over 100 times. But then, new songs being written. And I think there we can think of, you know, songs from the community of church history. A lot of, you know, we don't have any, I don't think, that, go, that we sing here regularly that go back too far, but few hundred years, some of the older hymns we sing that just have sort of a beautiful way of proclaiming biblical truth and uh, these kind of timeless feeling melodies. But then songs also from the community of Christians, we might say modern worship songs. There are plenty of songs that we sing here that were written in the last 10, 20, 30 years that we're just, yeah, we think that's, that's a fit for us. We like the lyrical content. We think that this is going to be a tool for us in worship. We integrate those. And then also really exciting, a lot of songs from our particular church community. If, you're, if there's songs that you're like, if you listen to worship music, you're like, man, I don't know half these songs. It's probably because they were songs written in the last 10 years by members of the Door of Hope family of churches, which is really exciting. A unique expression of worship from us through music. Some of the songs we're singing this morning, in fact. 
So I think the point here is that there's a diversity of songs, new and old, directly scriptural, and original, joyful, somber, celebratory, and lamenting. Many musical style genres, I think, is employed here. There is no one, you know, divine musical genre, which I think leads to, <laughs> I won't, I could spend a lot of time on this, I just won't. I think there are creative problems with worship music as a singular genre or style. It's kind of become this like vaguely Britpop, vaguely like you just, you just kind of put U2's The Joshua Tree in a blender and then add a lot of water to it to kind of water it down. <laughs> and uh, CCM worship music comes out on the other side of that. Um, that's my opinion, much of it. Don't want to get in trouble here. But my point is that I, I, think, um, I think the idea is not that there's some sort of one genre of music that American Christians really in the last 20 years have figured out is the right you know, genre expression of music. I think we can enjoy lots of genres and lots of sounds and experimentation and be creative and you know, let our enjoyment of the music that we uh, enjoy, not just to copy and say, I'm going to be the Christian version of... Uh, Dua Lipa this morning. <laughs> what did that sound like? Someone's doing it, I'm sure. Just turn on the radio. Um, but to, yeah, be influenced by things that you enjoy and say, I'm going to write mu worship music. Or when I'm the bass player, the steel player, I'm going to use these influences and help in this community of musicians create something that's unique to us. It doesn't have to fit a particular mold. For our part, we want to pursue musical passion and simple excellence reflective of the people and their gifts who participate here musically. So our, our hope here is that our music will just feel authentic to who we are. We're not trying to reproduce any you know, certain popular brand of worship music or style or whatever. We just want it to be authentic to who we are from our heart, from our heart. That doesn't mean it's better than anyone else's style. It just means it's authentic to who we are. That's the goal. We're not trying to fit into some kind of Christian mono-genre musically, but to let our musical praise flow out of who we are uniquely as a community, as musicians, etc. Maybe one more thing to say on that is this, leads, this raises questions of preference in worship music. So I don't assume that everyone is here. In fact, I hope, I, I, well, I know because I've talked to some of you, and I hope it's a good thing that there are many people here who are not part of this community just because the worship is exactly dialed to your preference. Um, it's, a health, it's a sign of health and maturity to show up to a worshiping community and say, well, that's not my genre. That's the Christian Dua Lipa. Dang it. Um, <laughs> I don't like it, but you know what? It doesn't really matter what my preferences are in this. This is secondary to the task that's before us, which is to commune with the living God in community. And so the more and more that we can become people who are not snobbish about our preferences, who are open-handed with them, the healthier we are, Door of Hope. That if you go, if you go to you know, a church down the road that's just playing all the stuff that's on Christian radio, whatever, just worship with those people. And be grateful for the opportunity to gather with Christians and sing songs. Amen? And I think here, I know everyone's probably got, we've got, it's wonderful in some ways, we've got like four or five different worship leaders that all have slightly different styles, and you have all probably got preferences. Like, oh, Wesley's leading again today. Well, Whatever. Or some of you are like, yes, Wesley. Like, I love, I love what he does, but oh no, Cameron's playing bass again. Dang it, that's so distracting. <laughs> I'll try not to be distracting, but like, you get my point. 
the goal, it's okay to have preferences. We all like different types of music. That's fine. It's not right or wrong. It's genuinely not. The goal is when we come for worship that it's about Jesus. And we have a deference and we just say the goal is to be formed into the kinds of people who can worship Jesus, whatever, if there's musical accompaniment or not. If it's this style or that style, this genre or that, the musicians are really talented or they're not. It doesn't matter. We're here for the king. Amen? Amen. So, musical worship. Let's conclude here. Let's resituate this. Our whole lives, if we are in Christ, are meant to be worshipful. We were separated from God. Our sin had distanced us from him. And in his grace, he provided a means and an activity by which people could approach him and worship him through the temple, animal sacrifices, this whole thing. It was grace that enabled this mechanism for people to come to display their faith through this system, and he honored that. But one day, he sent his son into this world, Jesus Christ, who was the once-for-all sacrifice, the true and better high priest, and the one for whom his death ripped apart the veil in the temple that separated God from men, finally. He has made it possible for all of us to approach God boldly and confidently through what he has done. And not just approach him, but he has made his home within those people who have called upon the name of Jesus. He has made us temples of his Holy Spirit. So wherever we go, whatever we do, we do with the presence of God among us and with us. All of life can and should be worship, whatever we are doing. And then there are moments, there are moments, and they happen organically, where we're just overcome with the goodness of God, the beauty of God, the grace of God, the love of God, who God is and what he has done. And we have to exclaim it through our bodies. Our whole person gets involved. And we call that praise. And sometimes that gets joined to music. You'd call that musical praise or musical worship or worship through song, whatever you want to call it. And sometimes we come to church on Sunday mornings. And we have a moment whether we're feeling it or not, whether we're excited or not, where we have a moment to say, I, regardless of how I'm feeling, I am choosing to prioritize a moment to step into that kind of musical worship, to let what has hopefully been an all-of-life thing come to a crescendo for a few minutes together with my brothers and sisters singing next to me and responding next to me, where we do it. We, we, try, we, we try to focus on Jesus. We try to be receptive and open to the filling of his spirit as best we can. We say, Lord, I'm going to use my whole body to exclaim these truths back to you for, for your praise and for the good of my brothers and sisters here as well. That's what we're doing, Door of Hope. And I know, um, I know that we have a culture that's a little bit reserved. And that's Okay. The point is not to try to manufacture what any other church worships like, but my, my only challenge is this. My only challenge is this. Give him everything. Give him everything. And if that's in stillness, that is fine. If that's in the quiet, that is fine. But if you want to praise him loudly, physically, boldly, please do it. Do it. Do it. I think there is something for us in, in reconsidering all of this and saying, yes, this is a moment for me to involve my whole person, my body in ways that are often not engaged 
when I am worshiping God out in my day to day. And to say, this morning, I'm going to kneel. This morning, I'm going to raise my hands. This morning, I'm going to bow my head. This morning, I'm, whatever it is, you're going to take a step out and to engage your whole self in this. Not to perform, not because the person next to you is doing it, or not, or not doing it because the person next to you is not doing it. Does that make sense? To simply say, I'm here to exclaim the beauty of this God and to engage my whole person as authentically and honestly as I can. That's what we're doing, Door of Hope. Amen? So, if the Spirit of God is gracious to fill us, what we can and should expect is to become more and more and more a singing people. Amen? We will sing with the Spirit, we will sing with our whole person, and we will sing with the community of believers. And hopefully we will do it joyfully and boldly and expectantly and celebratorily and sadly when we're sad and mourn, we will bring our whole selves to him. That's what this time is for. Pray with me.